0: Hi-ho, Tudor-minded people. It's Philadelphia Carey for Tudor Time Machine. The word I share with you this week is filch. Of this act, my former friend and ningle, a lady in the Queen's service whose name I shall not speak, for I, unlike others, am a lady of nobility and discretion, has accused me, all because a gentleman of our acquaintance prefers me to her. Oh, unheedy love. I did not filch his attentions from my former friend. They fell to me in consequence of my charms.
1: Filch? How now, Tudor Files, what think you? If you're new here, I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. And we're here with Philadelphia Carey for Tudor Word of the Week. Don't miss a word and listen to the Tudor Time Machine story project. Jessica reads a
0: chapter of Time's Riddle and then my dear friends discuss the history behind the
1: mystery. How diverting. So subscribe on YouTube and give me a like. Thank you for listening. And we want to thank Feedspot for naming our podcast one of the top 10 Tudor podcasts on the web. Number two, to be exact. Tudor files are an amazing bunch. Every one of you has the wit of Rosalind and the heart of Cordelia. Philadelphia, can you give us the spelling of Filch, our word of the week? It is spelled F-I-L-C-H. And it means to steal surreptitiously, in small amounts, on the sly. So a synonym might be pilfer. And of course, for Harry Potter fans out there, Filch is the name of the caretaker of Hogwarts, who filches things from students and is always sneaking around. And our
0: use of the word comes from another British woman of letters who wrote 400 years before J.K. Rowling did, introducing Mary Sidney, considered the most important non-royal female patron and writer in Elizabethan England. Ta-da! You go, Mary Sidney. Gage and Jessica, you must speak of your betters with more respect. Mary Sidney was the Countess of Pembroke, a countess. She was from a very noble family. Her father was Sir Henry Sidney, and her mother was Mary Dudley, the sister of my queen's favorite, Sir Robert Dudley himself. Her own brother was Sir Philip Sidney, the great soldier and poet. And her son, the Earl of Pembroke, was a lover of poetry himself and a patron of our most renowned playwrights.
1: I apologize, Philadelphia. I will treat her name with more respect the Countess of Pembroke was a very lofty personage.
0: I will also treat her name with more respect, but I have to say there are some people out there who argue Mary Sidney wrote William Shakespeare's plays.
1: But how many people are there supposed to be who wrote Shakespeare beside Shakespeare?
0: I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of at least six. So if there's six people who wrote Shakespeare besides Shakespeare, then five of those must be a conspiracy theory. <laughs> I so complicated.
1: <laughs> I think Mary Sidney was probably too busy doing a fabulous job of being Mary Sidney. She was a lady in waiting to the Queen, a writer of poetry, a translator, a patron of the arts, the head of two enormous country houses. She
0: was a planner of theatricals at her home, an
1: adept court politician, a friend of Ben Jonson, Shakespeare, and a host of other writers at the time. She was a prolific letter writer to all kinds of intellectuals. The mother of four children, a linguist, a widow who commanded her own life at a time when women were subject to so many laws that kept them out of business. She was doing too much of her own impressive writing to masquerade as William Shakespeare. And also thinking Mary
0: Sidney would even have wanted to write plays for the popular playhouses in London, it's really wearing a presentist hat because we have to remember that in the 16th century, being a noble woman, an intellectual, an influential and prolific writer, a woman of letters, a courtier, a confident of Queen Elizabeth, a writer of poetry that was read at court, that had so much more status than writing for the general audiences. I just don't think she would have been particularly compelled for writing for the popular London playhouses.
1: It's true, and now, of course, we hold Shakespeare in incredibly high esteem. But the job of writing for the theater, it was pretty low on the social ladder in the 16th century. Oh, the Countess
0: was indeed revered. She was renowned for her Protestant piety and for doing a beautiful lyric, metric translation of the Psalms. But I have seen this pious lady in much disport, dancing and playing games of cards and dice, shooting pistols with her ningle, the Countess
1: of Brelamont, and even taking tobacco. Oh, she was a well-rounded lady. She wasn't interested in making money. That is something that now we think, oh, that's an important goal. But in her time period, she wouldn't think I have to monetize my talents.
0: Making money? Oh, Gage, how can you say she would do something so low? She did not need to work. Her country home of Wilton House was called a paradise for poets, but she did not want to make money. And she even wrote theatricals, only to be performed at her house for her guests, not to be sold a ticket. Even King James and his queen, Anne of Denmark, were the countess's guests
1: in 1603. Mary Sidney could really write. Our use of the word filch is from Mary Sidney's translation from the French of Robert Garnier's Mec Antoine, written in 1578.
0: And I think maybe sometimes we think of a translation as being sort of What's the big deal? You take the words and you put them in a different language. But when you're translating poetry, and especially when you're trying to make it rhyme and it's blank verse, you basically have to change all the vocabulary, too. So it's kind of it's a little bit of a different beast than translating a word for its equivalent in English. And actually, in fact, Mary Sidney's translation of this play, it's considered one of the first English dramas in blank
1: verse. And historians credit her translation for influencing Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. She's not doing a literal translation. She's interpreting and creating something on its own as well.
0: I do so adore the tragedy of the Egyptian queen and her Roman lover, how they joined in battle against Octavius Caesar and how Antony condemns himself to death when he fears Cleopatra has betrayed him.
1: Oh, let's hear the lines in Mary Sidney's translation when Antony speaks of his love for Cleopatra and its consequences.
0: Oh, it is too terrible. Antony likens the fate of his great passion to the story of the god Prometheus. He says, by stealing sacred fire, Prometheus then unwise, provoking gods to ire, the heap of ills did stir and sickness pale and cold our end which onwards spur to plague our hands too bold to filch the wealth of skies.
1: Oh that's so good. I really like to plague our hands too bold to filch the wealth of skies.
0: Okay I'm all about presentism today but I want to put on my presentist hat again just for a sec. Because at her death in 1621, after all these things she did, Mary Sidney was eulogized by the poet William Brown only as Sidney's sister, Pembroke's mother. That's it. All her hard-earned credits were filched by the 16th century patriarchy.
1: Damn them. (laughs) But we will remember her for so much more. I will say it again. You go, Mary Sidney, Countess of Pembroke. Give heed
0: to the files. Bring some 16th century sauce to your vocabulary with filch. Listen in next time. Don't miss a word. Subscribe on YouTube and give me a like.